This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. I've entitled today's Bible study, Term Limits. Now, I'm not going to be dealing with the issue of term limits as we understand it, in which you are fully and thoroughly aware of the limitations it places upon the time that you are eligible to serve in Michigan's legislature. But I'm going to talk about a different kind of term limit. The term limit that God places upon the lifespan of a country. My text is Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. It comes in basically the middle of Paul's message, or at least what we have recorded of it, in the book of Acts that he gave up on Mars Hill. He had brought the gospel to Europe. He had had a tumultuous reception up north of Athens, and because of controversy stirred up by those who were opposed to his message, he had traveled down to Athens by himself, leaving behind some of his followers who weren't not so much a lightning rod for issues as he was. He went down to Athens, and while he was there, he started looking around at what all was happening in the city, and he found himself up on Mars Hill. And Mars Hill had become, over the centuries, a rather sort of a sophist debating society area. At one time, it was the seat of great power of the civil government of the Athenian city-state. But by this particular period of history, it had long since slipped from that glory, but was still a place of intellectual discussion and influence. Upon his touring the city on his way up there, he discovered that there were a number of altars in the city to an unknown god. And that all goes back to an incident that had happened a couple of centuries prior to that, in which there had been a great plague. And in order to appease the plague, the citizens of Athens had gone around, and wherever there was a dead body, if it was near a temple, they would make a sacrifice to that god to appease that particular god. But if an individual was found and there was no temple nearby or shrine to any kind of one of the numerous deities of the pantheon, they would erect an impromptu sort of roadside altar to an unknown god and there make a sacrifice to it just in case they missed anybody in the process. And so he picked up on that and he said, I want to talk to you about that unknown god. And uh, he said, I, I perceive that you're a very superstitious people, that you have all kinds of deities, but I want to talk to you about the true deity, the real deity. And so he begins by talking about the fact that the real God, the only God, is the God who created the world in which we live, the, one, the planet upon which we stand, the cosmos in which the planet exists, and the entire framework, that which we see and that which we cannot see, which makes up the world, including us. And when he gets down to verse 26 of Acts chapter 17, he says this, he, that is God, made from one man, now he's talking about Adam here, every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So in that verse, Paul clearly said when God created Adam and started this whole process of humankind, God's goal was that mankind would live all over the planet, that man would be the dominant species of the planet, the planet was made for man, that man was to be 
under God's leadership, a steward of the planet and caretaker of the planet. But the planet was made for man. And so uh, God also determined that men would be broken into nation groups. And God also determined their appointed times, their term limits, if you please. And he set the boundaries of their nation states. So God decides when a nation begins and when a nation as an entity ends. He also determines its geographical imprint on the planet. And that may expand and shrink depending upon that nation's faithfulness to God's design for it. Now, Paul goes on to say that the reason God did that and placed those boundaries there is that they might seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. Paul then goes on to explain that even their own philosophers and poets had recognized the fact that God was very near to all of us. And that launches them then into an explanation of the gospel, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But right now, I want us to zero in on the fact that God determines and holds us accountable for the stewardship of what we do as citizens of a nation state, that God created nations and that nations serve a purpose in creating an environment within the borders of that nation where men can find God, to create a conducive atmosphere for them to know God and to experience God and to know the truth about God. The Apostle Paul, in another one of his letters to a group of people over in Asia Minor, which is now in modern-day Turkey, said this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. So we are an accountable group of people, and God created us in his image, and he gave us a brain and a mind, and he expects us to use it. And one of the things he expects us to do with it is to seek him and find him because God has clearly revealed himself through Jesus Christ, through the scriptures, through fulfilled prophecy in time-space history. And in the experiences of men, God also has revealed himself in historical record. I want to point you to two examples. I'm lifting this out of an excellent new volume written by Michael Medved. Michael Medved is a radio talk show host out in Seattle, Washington. He, for many years, was a film critic of some renown, and I, he still does film reviews, and he's one of my favorite film reviewers. He's also an excellent author. He's married to a psychologist, and she has produced some excellent material, particularly about in the area of marriage and marriage health. He's a wonderful man. He is he's a Jewish man. He's, he's not a Christian, though he is a friend of Christianity. But he's written a wonderful book called The American Miracle. And the subtitle is Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. He said, in looking at our history, you cannot help but be impressed by the fact that God has had a role in its development. And he says, that's not just his idea. That's the idea of the very men in various epochs of our history who have looked at it, particularly the men who have been involved at the helm of it. And looking at it and saying, you know, we didn't just do this by ourselves. God has literally guided much of this process. 
but they also were aware that God also was involved in judging them as to whether or not they did the process correctly. One of the issues that he deals with is the understanding by many of the leaders of our nation at the foundation of our country over the problem of the inequity of slavery. It is interesting who were the predictors of disaster that would come out of not getting rid of that institution and rectifying that situation. One of them, of course, was Thomas Jefferson, the man who penned the very words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He knew all that. He knew and he admitted in his own writing that slavery was an abomination and it could not be tolerated. In 1820, Jefferson wrote from Monticello about the national debate surrounding the Missouri Compromise and the admission to the Union of a new slave state. And here I quote from Jefferson's own letter as quoted by Michael Medved. Quote, This momentous question, the question of slavery, like a fire bell in the night, awakened me and filled me with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union, that is, the death knell of the Union. It was hushed indeed for the moment, but this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coinciding with a marked principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated, and every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. End of quote. That what he's saying is, this issue of slavery, which we have temporarily postponed in the Missouri Compromise, is going to come back and haunt us. And Michael Medved goes on to say this, In the midst of his long retirement, more than 11 years after leaving the tumult of Washington, the then 77-year-old Jefferson foresaw the long, tortured process that led in four decades to secession, civil war, and the most prodigious bloodletting in the nation's history. And here again he quotes Jefferson, Quote, I regret that I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifice of themselves by the generation of 1776 to acquire self-government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons, and that my only consolation is to be that I will not live to weep over it. End of Jefferson's quote. So Jefferson predicted that there is a moral consequence to not dealing correctly with the moral principles that God has built into us in our world. Another one, and of course, both of these men were Southerners. Both of these men, Jefferson was a Southerner. Jefferson owned slaves, and Jefferson was grieved by his own inability to deal with his own issues on this area. But he clearly understood that God would hold us accountable for that choice. Another one who wrote eloquently about the fact that God would deal with us on this issue was George Mason. George Mason was a very passionate voice, an extremely influential person in the creation of the Constitution of the, of the United States, and a great clear thinker. His was the most passionate voice calling for an immediate end to 
what he called the infernal traffic of Africans at the Constitutional Convention, the end of this importation of slavery. George Mason, a wealthy plantation owner and brilliant lawyer who personally owned more than 200 slaves, had come to see slavery as, and this is his quote, quote, a slow poison daily contaminating the minds and morals of our people, end of quote. He said this, that the holding of slaves would bring the judgment of heaven on our country, that is, on the United States. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. Now, that is well worth pondering. When God judges me as an individual and God judges you as an individual, it will be after our lives are over, though automatic judgment of sin and automatic blessing for righteousness come in this life. Nevertheless, the final assessment and judgment of our lives is in the hereafter. But that's not true of nations. And remember, Paul said God is involved and holds accountable a group of people about how their nation proceeds. God judges nations, says Mason, in this lifetime. God judges our nations in the here and now. And what he said was, when you have an unfair and hypocritical and unrighteous institution that they had allowed in the United States at the time of slavery, that God would judge that, and it would be a horrific judgment. Well, both Jefferson and Mason proved to be prophets because in just a few decades after they uttered those fateful words, the country was ripped apart, and the issues and the struggle of that great fight from 1860 to 1865 is still with us. Now today, we also have tremendous moral issues. We have taken it upon ourselves as elements within our nation to redefine marriage for heaven's sake to not protect the unborn, to not deal in fairness with our founding articles of faith between a government and its people. We have allowed runaway national debt, all in violation of God's word that you can't borrow yourself into prosperity. On and on it goes. So eventually, eventually, there will be an accounting. And when it comes, it will be in accordance with whether or not we've tried at all to align ourselves with the truth that God has revealed, or whether or not we have thumbed our nose at him and are walking away as fast as we can. Now, at the end of that message, Paul gave them a way out. He said, there's a way for you to deal with this right now, that God holds all men accountable, but now God has provided a way for you to deal with it right now that will give you a directive and could steer the course of your country back to redemption. And here it is in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the end of Paul's address to the Areopagus upon Mars Hill. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, that is, he's speaking to the pagan audience, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, that is, should they should change their mind about their course if that course is taking them away from God, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness 
through a man whom he has appointed. God says, look, it's time for you to change your mind about your own personal approach to life. It is time for you to change your mind about how you regard God's revelation. It is time for you to change your mind and turn to God for the major decisions of your life, to control your life. Because there's coming a time out there when God is going to judge the world, that is everybody that's ever lived, and he's going to judge him through a man whom he has appointed. And of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And how do you spot this guy? God is going to judge the world through whom? All right, who is this man? And of course, it turns out to be the God-man. And how do you spot him? Paul says, quote, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay, look around you and find the guy that rose from the dead. That's the man that God has appointed to judge the world. Now, that's very good news because we are told in the pages of the New Testament that in the death of Jesus, what Jesus did was he died for our sins. So you can find personal forgiveness for your sins through faith in Jesus Christ, through believing that it's true, that the Bible is true, that you, you believe the record is true, that he did literally die on 30 AD and he rose from the dead. He died on April 7th, rose from the dead on what we would call April the 9th. And Jesus is indeed demonstrated by the resurrection that he is both God and man. And he is our savior. He is the redeemer. The world will someday be controlled by him, governed by him, not in just the spiritual sense, but in the literal sense. But I don't have time to get into that eschatological discussion, that discussion of future things revealed in Scripture. But in the meantime, nations that will change their mind about doing it their way or doing it God's way and will turn back to God's revealed truth in Scripture and back to a significant number of individuals in that nation submitting themselves to Jesus personally as Lord and Savior. That country can find tremendous healing for those areas in which it will be judged if they continue down a road opposite to God's purpose for it. Now, why would God do this? I'll tell you why God does this. Whenever we don't do it God's way, whenever we step outside of the plan that God has for, whether it's marriage, personal morals, or anything else. Whenever we do that, it is calamitous for us. It hurts us. It hurts everybody that we touch with our sinful ways. And it destroys everything around us. The wages of sin is death, and it hasn't changed. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's always good news in the midst of bad news. May God richly bless you.